Right at the Fork is supported by Picnic, the app where you can share and discuss your best dishes. Picnic. Eat better together. That's P-I-Q-N-I-Q. Download it today on iTunes. And welcome back. It's me. I'm going to do that differently. You're listening. Nah, I want to do welcome back. <laughs> do this whole thing. Keep the whole. I got to think. I want to hear the. Whole you want to hear? You can't do this on King. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't. No, what I want to. What I want to say is, I want to be a little bit of a braggart, uh, Scott, because I was going to basically say Scott. Scott. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of my boss, great, Scott. Man. Oh my gosh! What the- Chris. Oh, well, we really? Can we? To can we really? So can we? Can we see that? No, that's what it was. I'm thinking of my. I'm thinking of my boss started texting me just mere moments ago. <laughs> Scott is our uh, our uh, guest today, and and I'm trying to set this up in a way to, to be a little bit of a braggart by saying this is Portland's number one food podcast. That, that, that's true, right? That's a true statement. Yeah, but you're kind of talking like a radio. True, we're number one. Nah, well, you know, hey. If perception is reality, yeah, and whether I don't it's know, reality you know or not, what? who knows? The, the podcast world is interesting because you don't always know everything yeah. that's going on well, out there. Here's one way that the uh, the everyday listener to the uh, podcast can help us out, which is by rating us on iTunes and wherever you're listening to this. If there's a, is a rating mechanism, hop online, give us a review, give us like the five star treatment. That's what we're hoping for. Or how many stars are available? But what that does is basically puts right at the fork into the podcast feeds. It's more likely to be recommended as a podcast to somebody so we can get, you know, more listeners. And, and, and let's say the bottom line is yeah. the, more li- the more people are listening, the more likely you're going to hear this podcast for longer. Right. So we can yes. sustain this baby. Yeah. It's, it's a win-win for everybody. Right. And, and a big win for our egos. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what this is all about. Right. Feeding our egos, yeah. not necessarily our stomachs or right. our... No, as you as you could tell from the beginning of this podcast, I am a broadcast professional. So, like, I always have my day job to fall back on that beautiful broadcasting stuff that I was doing in the beginning because I am so good at it. Yeah, you know, you right. are. That's why I'm glad you're here. There's somebody to pick up the slack. Ugh. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm Cork Johnson, and that of course is Chris Angelus from uh, Portland Food Adventures, and uh, we're back for another week. We are. Glad about that. When we talk about Portland food adventures, what I really love what you're doing now, and I'm super jealous, and I'm going to try to figure out a way to scheme my way into this, is that you've gone international with these uh, food, you know, these Portland food adventures. It's not just here in Portland, which are always great, but now you're going overseas. We are, and we just it took a while. They they take a lot of love and time to put together. We're yeah. working with a company called Customized Journeys this year. Last year, Jose Chesa. Uh, and Christina uh, did it ourselves, and that went really well. We had a wonderful trip that you can check out on our blog. But uh, we're going again this year, not only with Jose to Spain, which will include Barcelona, uh, Aragon to his family summer home, yeah. and Bilbao and uh, La Rioja region, wine region, and also San Sebastian. We're doing that. Uh, which is a pretty extensive 10-day trip, but we're also doing one with uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, Aaron Barnett mm-hmm. on the podcast to Lyon, your 
former city? Yeah, I lived I lived in Lyon for almost six months, and it truly and and this is the big secret is everybody thinks France, they think Paris is the uh, the center to go to, which might be true in terms of tourism, but when it comes to food. Uh, Lyon is the place where a lot of the really good chefs have come out of, and they're, they've got great cooking schools there, and, and the food is just awesome. It's kind of known as, per capita, the best food city in France. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's Paris, but Lyon is yep. is smaller and more intimate, and we'll get to the opportunity to get to know Lyon with Aaron, who, in fact, has the, one of the best Lyonnaise restaurants in the in the country, and he's never been. Hmm. to Lyon. Yeah. So we get to discover it with him. And then all of these trips are with great chefs, fun to be with. I wouldn't do it if they weren't fun to be with. Yeah. That'd be kind of a fun trip. A chef that's like an a, asshole a and no fun to be with. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't let's know. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Is that how you're going to bill it? Yeah. yeah. There's always, you got to bill it some way. Right. But this one built uh, pizza and wine and more Italian food with Rick Gencarelli to uh, Southern Italy. And I'm excited about that. Um, so they're all on, where are they, Court? They're all on uh, PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Right. So anyway, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about that because that's, you know, that's exciting in my yeah, life. Course. And it has something to do with the food scene mm-hmm. um, and our podcast as well. Yeah. So, but today, you mentioned Scott before. Yeah. When, you know, when <laughs> I was thinking of you, but thinking of Scott. Right. No, uh, Scott Dolick. Am I saying that? Dolich. Scott Dolich is our guest today, and Scott's been all over the news lately because of their decision as a uh, as the two restaurants he runs, which is Park Kitchen and Bent Brick, that they're going to be shifting to a no tip policy. Yeah, and it's more. It really, as he explains it in this podcast, it's really interesting. Uh, to him, it's not so much no tipping; it's it's uh, sustenance for the restaurant and equality in back of the house and front of the house and figuring out a model that will work for everyone. Yeah, and, and work for a, uh, a future that most likely have the uh, minimum wage in Oregon rising to kind of stay in front of that. And deal with Be it. Ready so for every it. restaurant is going to have to deal with that in some way. And when people think about that, uh, it's really easy to say, yeah, we should have higher minimum wages. Um, and that's true. But you have to look at the impact that it has on every restaurant where they're lowering the floor of what everyone gets paid. And then they have some others who have been paid at a higher level who now have to go even higher. And how do you sustain that model? And Scott's working on how to do that. The, the, uh, the change has not occurred yet at Park Kitchen uh, and at Bent Brick. They're working on it. They're looking for input from those of you who are avid diners and maybe not so avid diners on how best to do that. Uh, but Scott's a good guy to be, it's a, it's an interesting situation to watch Yeah, because Scott's been around for a long time in the Portland food scene. He's one of the, uh, the stately chefs, um, uh, who, you know, he opened park kitchen as we talked about 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, came from North Carolina as quite a few Portland chefs have. I don't know if you know, Kathy Wims came from North Carolina Mm. as well. Um, and, um, he's been through some of the best places, you know, back in the nineties and early two thousands in Portland. So he knows it left and right and talks a little bit about the changes in the scene here. Uh, I won't lay the whole thing out, but we hope you continue to listen Yeah, no for way. the entire 45 minutes or so. And as you do, and if you enjoy it, here's one thing of encouragement for you. Share it, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
Uh, when you do that, we'll actually uh, put you into the running for a uh, gift certificate. Yeah, one, I don't know if it's going to be Park Kitchen or Bent Brick, but yeah. one of the two. Does, does Scott even know about this? Yeah, no, Scott oh, knows about Scott it. Scott knows about this. I, right. We just didn't talk about which restaurant. Oh, okay. So, so uh, yeah, so share it, and, and not just any share, like, you know, a simple, easy share. No, no, no. Say something about it, like, you know, whatever you want to say. This is a great podcast. Only if it's good. Right. Well, I, yeah. No, we'll take the criticism. We'll take, we'll take a, a share as a share. Well, that's true. A share yeah. is a share. However, I, you know, the likelihood of them, us, the two of us, yeah. choosing who's going to get the oh, gift that's certificate true. is probably, <laughs> unless you say something really funny, right, like disparaging about one of us, the other guy's this, probably- This podcast is meh. You should listen. Yeah. That, there's an example. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. if that's going to get you dinner at the Bent Brick, but we will send you something from Chuck E. Cheese's. Mmm. Court, I love the no food or drink right over chef's yeah, head. Yeah, you know, well, I've told you. Oh, uh, yeah. That would be a great, great one to have up there. Yes, um, it's on perfect. Food, <laughs> on a food podcast. Yeah, it's great. The problem I was like is, that, is that other people, not us, right. were just this whole idea of just like, I'll eat where I work. And so my keyboard over here had like chocolate down in it. And Maybe you what can kind have of a little... chocolate? Well, I didn't taste, so I don't know. I was going to say you could just have a little taped off area right here. This is the eating area right, right here. But don't we don't eat want, on the we, desk. We don't right. want to be eating on the podcast. I don't think that's a good, good thing. No, no, nothing, nothing's worse munching. than people. Yeah, people lip smacking, and then tempting and talking right. about how great it is. But if you brought some food, that would have been nice. You got, I you just, can bring some delicious things. I just had my second breakfast. I'm good, thanks. What was your second breakfast? Oh, I had a little uh, scrambled eggs, and it was pretty good. Well, I, what was uh, what was uh, first breakfast? First breakfast was a little bit of yogurt and some leftover fruit. Mm. That's my good. kids get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, so yeah. there, there's two breakfasts involved in my day. That makes How sense. How old are your kids now? 14 and 12. Oh, so you don't necessarily have to get up when they get up. Uh, Yeah, I do. You do? <laughs> what would it's, happen if you didn't get up and you just said, you guys fend for yourselves and see you later? Well, one, my wife would crush me. My wife would just be so pissed. And the other, my kids would get me up anyway. Slamming doors, running up and down stairs, oh, dogs barking. The whole family thing. That's it, true. If, I, I have one son that's good at walking very quietly and the other one that has no clue. Not my, both my kids have no clue at all. Slamming doors, arguing who gets a bathroom, it sucks. Who wins that? Uh, it's 50-50 draw, although I have to give my <laughs> daughter the kind of the, the, the advantage on that one. Yeah. I, sometimes you have to defer to, uh, yeah. to do that. So thank you for coming. You got it. Love Appreciate to be Appreciate it. I haven't seen you for a little while. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we, I'm always talking about... Places that I need to get that I'm not getting into. And your Bent Brick and Park Kitchen, um, wonderful places, and um, I haven't been in enough. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing no, to myself, too, because I'm missing out on the experiences. There's no need to apologize. I see what you're doing. You're a busy guy. But yeah. Park Kitchen and Bent Brick keep doing their own things. They're doing well. Park Kitchen, yeah. I was thinking the other day, this is how time flies. Not so much for your 10th, but that was... How many years ago did you celebrate your 10th? Two that or three, right? Three years ago. So it feels yeah. like I was thinking about it, and I thought, oh, last year he did his 10th. You know, yeah. that was like, and it was, now you're 13. Uh-huh. So, and uh, that was 2002 then, correct? That 2003. 2003. No, 2002. Sorry, 2002. 2002. So you're one of the, you know, Wildwood isn't yeah. there any longer. You're really... Yeah. You and Vitali and Higgins, Greg Higgins, mm -hmm. you guys are, uh, you're you the senior statesman here. 
Well, your your listeners can't see the gray on the beard, but it's it's there. Well, plus you're shaving your head, so you receding can't see hairline that. And, and and gray gray hairs. Yeah, well, you're not shaving it for the gray. You're shaving it for the receding hairline. <laughs> That's right. I was with I, with a chef who shall rename who shall remain nameless the other night, who has our hair, mm-hmm. right? Who said um, who said, well, I'm shaving it off because I don't want that mad scientist look. Wait, hang on. Should I guess? Yes. Who's going to be that way right now? I'm going to say... But he had a hat on that I thought was questionable, and I didn't at the time say you'd rather have that hat than this, but there's a little clue, a hat. Uh, Gabe Rucker? No, no, Gabe doesn't. Gabe's got a good, decent head of hair. I know, he's so young, too. Yeah, he doesn't have anything to worry about. Gosh, I don't know, give me, give me a hint. Give me one hint. Close by. We're not, if you, were, you could get there in a few minutes from where we are right now. Greg Higgins? No, but good guess. Uh, Daniel Mondock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So huh. he He's always way. shaved his head, though. I know, and I didn't know that was the reason, but he told me it was because I, he kind of looked at me and said, because I look like you. He can do it. He's a good-looking dude. Yeah. No, he gets away with it. And he's, you know what? I think he is one of the most talented chefs we have in Portland. Without a doubt. With, Without a doubt. Hands down. Yeah. And the only, the only, I think a lot of people know that, but the reason that he doesn't is he's moved around a little bit, so he hasn't established himself at any one Yeah place but we did a uh, pfa much like we did you we did the second one we ever did we're on number 55 now scott christ cool so it's a lot and i still remember sitting down with you when you had jason french had called you and said you yeah. should talk to this guy nobody knows and you were so gracious to do a portland food adventures dinner it was so beautiful i just as a matter of fact sent the images from allison jones's blog to someone friday Mm-hmm. And they were th- that private dining room was so so pretty. Yeah. But I, let me just get back to that in a sec. But Daniel Mondock put on, and Lisa and David Cheneau at Raven and Rose, a Portland Food Adventures dinner that was like no other. They did a British Isles menu through the ages. And oh, it was, wow. you know, from 1,200, 1,300, mm-hmm. 1,400. And the spread, they turned that rookery into, they really went all out. It was great. So Daniel, I, I'm glad I get the opportunity to give a little shout out to him on your podcast. He's an underappreciated talent for sure. You've had some underappreciated talents at your restaurants. <laughs> I'd like to think that they're appreciated, well, by me at least. No, but you were the first one. I shouldn't say, I didn't mean to word it that way, but you were the first one to say to me before, just after Will Price had started Whole Fast, and I said, who's the most, I asked you in an interview who the most talented chef in Portland was, and you said Will. Yeah, Will Price and Joel are just, every time I see what they do, it blows my mind. Blows my mind. And I still, I wish I had him at Bent Brick, but I, I knew that it wasn't the right spot for them. For sure. Yeah, it's kind of doesn't, it was kind of running contrary to what you wanted for Bent it Brick, was. but you had this incredible talent. So you were, I'm just guessing, you use can it, correct me. Use it or lose it. Yeah, use it so or lose it. Trying to use it. So, yeah. um, and you didn't have enough room at Park Kitchen for. No, I mean, yeah, not at the time. It wasn't the right time for that. But certainly Will and Joel, I love what they do. I love what they do, and I, I wish them all the, the success. And when it's interestingly enough, when they started Holdfast, Will and I talked about it, and I said, Will, I think you're fucking crazy for doing this. But he's doing it. He's Why doing did it you well. think he was crazy? It's a hard business model. They both have to be there all the time. Well, that's true. They both have to be there all the time. And it, it kind of necessitates a super small business model, but they're crushing it. They're crushing it. They're it's in. worth it for them to be there. Yeah, and they love doing it, so it's great for them. 
Um, yeah, they are super talented. I love. I went to a collaboration there with Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Gabriel, yeah, that was pretty special. It's a really nice space. It's a good vibe. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, I w- uh, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was uh, you're doing something that's really exciting. I think. Yeah. And shaking it up and causing a little conversation about more than just food, right? And that's part Very of it. Much. Food's got to be great. Yeah. But. Uh, there was a, uh, it, it went public very, about a few weeks ago that uh, you're going to go to a no tipping policy at Park yeah. Kitchen and Bent Brick. Right. Um, and Court, don't get too excited about not tipping because it's going to come back at the end. No, I, know, I, I, I generally get how it works. I'm just curious to, to know, like, has it started yet? Is that, no. That it's just been announced that you're moving that way. Not yet, Court. So one of the reasons why we we kind of planned it out the way we did was because we knew it was going to take a long time to get there so we wanted to keep people informed hey we're going to be doing this in 2016 and the first thing that the uh, press kind of latched onto was oh my god no tipping somebody else is going to do it and that wasn't really the case we got a ton of training to do first before Mm -hmm. we even take tips off the table so but this by the way was the plan to go out there and say, let's talk about this before we do yes. it. And not, not just surprise everybody with, it's available today. Yes. So part of the process is, is what you're about to talk about. You're right. We didn't really want to, the least, we didn't want to surprise anybody. We didn't want to surprise our staff. We didn't want to surprise our customers for sure. Because why would we want to do that? We've established, we've worked 13 years to get our customers. We don't want to scare the shit out of them. So one of the things that we really wanted to give it was a, a, a long lead time. Hey, we're looking at doing this in six or eight months. Oh, it's that far out. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of training. We're, the, the interesting thing about all this is that the part that's exciting is what we're doing behind the scenes. It's not really the, the taking the tips off the table. When we first started looking into it, it was problems or challenges that we were facing within the restaurant. One of them was hiring cooks. I'm sure that you've... you've heard all the, the news about how, how to hire cooks. It's almost impossible to get good talent, uh, mostly because why would you want to work for minimum wage 10 hours a day slaving away? You really have to be passionate about it to do that. So, and a vision to own your own place. So the model itself, right, is conducive to part of churning. It, part of it. Bit. Yeah. So that was a big, that was a big issue for us internally. Um, also, we were having trouble keeping servers because of the ebb and flow of service throughout the year. January, February, March, it's usually pretty slow, so you don't have a lot of servers on board. Or the ones that are on board, they get one shift a week or two shifts a week. And then in the summertime or December, we're gangbusters. We need you five days a week. We need you six days a week, and you've got more work than you could possibly handle. So they were complaining to us, our servers were complaining to us about hey, we need a more steady revenue stream. And I'm like, I can only do what my restaurant can provide. Um, but that wasn't really, that wasn't really the truth because we weren't looking at the bigger picture for the model. We weren't looking at it first from, can we actually employ people, everybody full-time instead of having part of the restaurant be full-time, part of the restaurant be part-time. And what we came, what, what our managers were, were started to realize was is that we were just kind of shafting our part-time employees. They were not, we weren't treating them as we were our full-time employees, which isn't fair. And it creates a divide in the restaurant, de facto. So that wasn't cool. We were having trouble with that. Um, 
And when we started to look at all the challenges, what we came up with was that, well, what, what if we look at having everybody full time? How would we do that? And then we started to look at our service program and, well, can we get servers on full time? That would be difficult. But what if they started to cook? Mm. Um, well, then we, now we've got something. You know, what if they prepped? What if they picked herbs? What if they aided cleaning the restaurant? Um, so we started to get more in depth with that. And after we started looking at it, then we came to the point, well, you know, we, we need to look at taking tips off the table because that's the hurdle. That's one of the hurdles is if, we're if those guys are still getting paid 30 bucks an hour, 35 bucks an hour with tips, everybody's going to want those shifts because they're getting paid more money by the hour instead of getting paid 11 12 $13 an hour cleaning the restaurant or cooking. Everybody would want these shifts. That was a hurdle. So then we started to think about, well, maybe we should just try, try to rotate everybody through all the shifts. And balance out the pay. Balance out the pay. Um, and so we kept on bouncing it back and forth, and we figured out, no, we're not going to rotate everybody because that's ludicrous. How would we train? We've got to keep our managers because they're the ones who are going to train. Mm -hmm. So we ended up focusing on keeping all of our managers in place because we have a lot of managers at the restaurant and then just rotating the cooks and servers along the schedule where they would spend a certain period of time on cold side, then a certain period of time on hot side, then a certain period of time on turn on, and then they'd go into like this service rotation where they'd prep during the day and then they'd serve at night for three hours. So that's what's cool for us because it's kind of, it's more internal, um, but we need to nail that. That's the tricky part. That's one of the big challenges for us is we know that if we're going to provide a shitty experience for guests, it's going to flop. It's not going to fly. So we're working on that first before we even touch tips. So, um, so you're in the process of d doing that, obviously. Yeah. So, so some of the people serving have been prepping already because you've got to start working on that. So right now, right now we're working on the other side. We're actually bringing our cooks out into the kitchen because we've done that. So you've been to the restaurant before and you've seen what happens at Park Kitchen and the Bent Brick. Our cooks have been running food for years years and that's so that we decided to start with that because we're good at it we mm -hmm. know that we can do that and it's just it's really one step away from running food and clearing glasses and such and to actually taking, taking an order, order. right um, it does require some selective hiring and that's another big challenge for yeah us. you're gonna have some people yeah. in the back of the house are saying i don't want to yeah. do this or also servers like no i didn't yes. i want to serve that's what i do so you're probably Obviously, you're limiting yourself to a certain uh, segment or percentage of possible servers and cooks because... Absolutely. The, but the cool thing about that is that those who are excited about it are going to be excited, right? Precisely. Yeah, we, we've, we've already started to find that we're, we're limiting our pool a little bit of potential hires. Um, but that pool we've found we've had great success with in the past. People like Will Price, Joel Stocks, David Padberg, David Sapp all these people who have started as cooks and really have become much, much more than cooks. And I think part of their education has really been doing stuff in the front of the house. And so you've been doing it for a while. So that you have months to go. So explain, I don't think a lot of people understand because uh, we've heard, you know, Andy Ricker yep. tried that in LA. And I don't know if there's, is there a model 
that you can follow? So, or did you come up with all this organically and say, okay, these are the what the things, just what you just said. These are the things that need to happen, and here's why. And right, this it would make sense to do this. Did yeah. you see this somewhere else, or is this we're, just you've intuition? It's not intuition. We're definitely paying a lot. We've been paying a lot of attention to what people have been doing over the past two years, and it's important to note that. It's two years is really the, the time frame that we've been looking at because no one's really been actively doing this until the minimum wage went up. That, right. was, that was one of the big triggers, external triggers, and that's another thing that we had to, had to really factor into it was, hey, we're going to go under if we have to pay everybody $15 an hour. And then raise the, the people who are now making $15 an hour to 20 well, no, we wouldn't have to pay them $20 an hour, but they would be getting paid a lot more per hour because if their minimum wage is 15 and change an hour and they're also getting paid tips, then they're going to be getting effectively, you know, $35, $40 an hour. Right, that, but you don't you have some, and I don't know, so this is like asking the question, don't you have some people in the back of the house that are at the $15 an hour or the higher level that would have to not, be raised? We're not there yet. We we pay between the restaurants an average of $12 an hour back there. But yeah, that would definitely raise raise our, our labor, which is a huge chunk. Labor is the biggest chunk of any restaurant's P&L. Every, every restaurant on the face of the planet, it's the biggest chunk. What percentage of your P&L is labor? Uh, for us, it's about 40, 42. Bent brick, it's a tiny bit higher. Um, and that's that's relatively good. It should be lower than that. Um, but we're i'm I'm a labor heavy guy. and the and the other thing I think that people don't understand uh, is that your margins, your profit margins are pretty slim. Oh, they get they go down. They've been going down a lot over the past couple of years. It used to be ten percent, twelve percent, where you you kind of figure your profit margin on that, and it's like steadily chipping away. And when the Minimum wage goes up; they are. It's really going to affect the profit margin. It's really going to. Yeah, I think there's going to be a big shakeout when that yeah. happens. But it's not happening all in one shot. When it, when and if it happens, I, I'm right? pretty convinced that it will happen. It will happen. I've already seen uh, schedules where it should be up at 15 and change an hour by 2021. Yeah, that's that happens pretty quickly. Much like. Hey, it was more three years ago that you celebrated your tenth anniversary. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, you really have to plan on it. Whenever you've got a business or restaurant, it, nothing happens in one month or two months. Things happen over the course of a year. So, and you're also dealing. The other factor is in this city, how many other restaurants are opening up? So when you open, when you open Park Kitchen in two thousand two, mm-hmm. uh, just explain the you know Portland for anybody who's not from Portland and yeah. hasn't seen. What's going on here? Yeah. Explain the difference between 2002 and 2016. That's funny. Uh, Leather Stores just sent me a couple of clips that he, he used to write for the Portland Tribune, which is kind of a, a bit of antiquated history right. there. And he's a great writer, by the way. He's of funny. All, he, yeah. I enjoy reading his columns yeah. when he was doing them. And he had he showed me a picture that was it was himself, me, Ken Forkish, John Taboda, Naomi, and uh, Marco Shaw. And Marco Shaw was the one who had the restaurant in Fremont. Fife. 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 That was my first favorite restaurant. It was great. In Portland. It's great. And then he moved. Yeah. And that was the community. That was the Portland community. Aside from Vitaly Paley, Corey Schreiber, and Greg Higgins, was who were it? kind of like the, the, like the gods of, of Portland cuisine <laughs> back then, 
that was really it. Everybody knew everybody else. It, it, it was amazing. But that's like a half a dozen people. So Easily. if you did a Feast Portland right now and it was the Portland chefs, you'd have like, you could do it in this room. Oh, you could do it. You could do it on the stage at Mary's Club if you wanted to. Well, have you thought about that? Uh, well, that's where we used to meet. But I, I totally, <laughs> I, I pitched that to uh, Emily because let's face it, that's where the cooks hang out at the end of the night. They really need to start interfacing with that. Really? They should have done it before Magic Garden closed up, but they fucked that one up. Really? I didn't know Magic Garden. Is that before my time? No. I've never been to Mary's Club either. You should educate yourself. I just go meet some chefs. They've got some that's, nice murals. <laughs> that's what it's all about, the murals? <laughs> so, but, but that was then, and now you can't even keep up. And so when I started... Uh, Portland Food Adventures, and you and I sat down in 2010. Right. And um, I said, so what are some of your, you know, you gave me a list of places for your gift certificates. Right. The tentacles you have out there of great people in the food scene who have been through Park Kitchen is, that's yeah. awesome. So if you go back to 2002, and all of you guys, you, Vitaly, Greg Higgins, yep. Leather, mm -hmm. you have uh, spawned. The whole food scene, if you really look at it. Who, uh, the Oregonian did the Six Degrees of Separation Yeah, a couple of years ago, yeah. and you were there. Mm -hmm. But you were one of the guys at Wildwood, and before that? Wildwood, I was at uh, Higgins right after Wildwood, Zephyro, and those were the restaurants, right? Zephyro, Higgins, and Wildwood were... were Genoa was around, right? Genoa was there. Genoa was a little... Um, um, East Side. Not... <laughs> yeah, you At the that. time. It was a little right. east side, but it was always kind of close-knit. I meant it was on the east side, so it wasn't, you guys were all on the west side. Yeah, and so, now it's all switched over to the east side. And, the, and back to the west. It's slightly. But, yeah, it was, it was super small. It was real incestuous. Everybody knew everybody else. Everybody had a good time. Everybody knew whose cooks were where. Uh, it was different. It was different. It was, I, it was a lot of fun. I miss it, although I definitely I enjoy the competition now. I think it's it was inevitable. There's no way that Portland could have stayed as small as it was. Did you ever think it was going to be what it is now? No, no. It was hard. It was hard to see it blowing up like it is. It's an international darling. And in 1993 or 94, it was just this cool regional. People just really like the vibe. But no, I couldn't. I couldn't predict it being an international. Who could? Scene. Yeah. You know, when I moved here, and now I, I now we've got the apocalypse to to deal with. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the apocalypse? I, I think that Kurt has some valid points. Let's just, just for anybody who hasn't been listening, you want to go, Kurt, was it three or four episodes ago? Yeah, it was the, it was the uh, wasn't it the first of 2016? First of 2016. Yeah. So for reference, we're talking about Kurt Huffman, and he mentioned that there's a restaurant apocalypse going on now. So Did he refer to it as that? Or is that what no, we've... and that's what Eater, someone okay. picked it up. Yeah. Someone picked it up and called it a restaurant he, he was basically saying that like uh, the first quarter or the first half of 2016 – is the toughest he's ever seen restaurants, you know, in his time here in Portland. And we'll probably see some closures that many of us won't expect. Yeah, but people have been saying that for years. But right. Yes. Uh, it's a tough, yeah, he said it was a tough time. Then we had John Goreman who said it's not that tough. Uh, you know, things are, rents are low compared to other cities. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, and Kurt's done business in other cities too. Yeah. So, anyway, so what do you think about that in relation to competition and, I'm going to, uh, they both have points. I, I think that what Kurt was trying to say is that there's a saturation point that's there now, which wasn't previous. I would say probably four or five years ago, we got to a point where 
there were as many closings as openings. And depending on the time of year and the economy, certainly 2008, you saw a bunch of, bunch of restaurants tank. And up until the past two, three months ago, where the economy was really doing, doing well and you saw a lot of openings and people were getting into the business and, and managing to survive. But when the economy starts to level out, things start to get hard. And I think you've just seen a saturation point because even though the, the uh, population is definitely climbing in Portland, there's only so many restaurants that, that it can support and so many restaurants of a specific ilk because I'm sure that Kurt was referring to those restaurants like many of his restaurants, St. Jack, or Park Kitchen, or Bent Brick, that are creative and are doing all this interesting stuff. There's just a bit of saturation, right? I mean, how many people want to think that hard about where they want to eat Mm-hmm. When they go out, there's only so many people that read Eater. The vast majority of the population, they re- I think that they really just want to go out and get great food, and they don't want to think about it. And they go to the same places over and over. And I think I think the people who don't read Eater tend to be the ones to go to, like, VQ. I, yeah. I, I found that there's a level of the people who read Eater in know who Scott Dolich is and know who... Uh, you know what's going on. And then there's this other level of people who say they know the food scene, and their idea is uh, uh, Portland City Grill and yep. veritable quandary. It's really interesting that there's the yeah, there's a dichotomy there yeah. for sure. But I think that there's just a saturation point. I think that you're going to see as many restaurants closing as you do opening, and and that's natural. You see that in New York, you see it in L.A., you see it in San Francisco where you get, you get some really high-profile openings and closings all the time. Um, and I do agree with John. It, it, relatively speaking, Portland is easy. Still, simple. Still. Simple. It hasn't changed yeah. in that and respect. Yeah, and that's a cost issue. Go to California, try to get a liquor license. Forget about it. You have to pay you know, close to $100,000 for your liquor license. I, just, I ran into Michael Madigan the other mm-hmm. day at yep. the uh, opening of 180, which is kind of an interesting... Yeah. Thing. He's a Speak- genius, by the way, Michael Madigan. Yeah, he is. Well, we had him on the podcast. I could not believe how smart that guy was. I couldn't keep up with him. Yeah. But he was saying uh, he's trying to open his bakery right now, and the the bureaucracy with the city is so slow, and he's very frustrated by it. In Portland? I, yes. And he's, yeah. you know, he was ready. You know, we were talking about going to Brooklyn and bringing the mafia in here to uh, get things moving along for him. Right. Well, Portland, Portland's the opposite, right? In New York and Brooklyn, you basically do have mafia running the construction, garbage, and you have to make payoffs for that. Here, it's city of Portland. And so you may not have that. You don't have to make the payoffs, but you got to wait. you got to wait. You do have to pay some people, but it's sanctioned. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of sanctioned criminal behavior going on. Right. Not, we won't go into that. So yeah. um, did you... To, to meld the two concepts together, opening things being difficult and opening and closing, did you get to the point uh, with Park Kitchen and or Brent, Brent Brick that you thought about this tipping model because things were getting tight or tough for you to the point where you, have you ever thought, hey, we may have to close this? No. Um, it, was, it wasn't that. It was, it, we're fortunate, all right? Park Kitchen is a super established restaurant. We're a success from day one. It's allowed me to pick my head up a little bit, um, and I feel very fortunate about that. Bent Brick, certainly the Bent Brick has had a, a longer road to travel to get there, um, but we're really looking at, at what we're doing for our employees first. 
we were actually able to write a mission statement, which I never thought that I'd be able to get to the point in my life, my restaurant life, where we'd be able to sit down and be like, okay, what are we going to do with the next five years of the restaurant? Because we've been there already. And one of the parts of that mission statement was we want to provide a sustainable and positive environment for our employees. And to hear our managers say, uh, this is a nice statement, but you're not really living up to it, hurts. It was embarrassing for me. And so that was really what kind of sparked the question, like, okay, so we're not, we've got this dichotomy between cooks and servers and part-time people and full-time people. Let's open it up. But everybody does, right? You're not the only ones. I'm not the only one, for sure. So everybody's got to be going, so at least some have to be going through the same process, and they may get there, and they may not. They may close. Correct. Well, it's not that they may close or not. This is this works for us, all right? Because we, we've taken a little bit of, of uh, flack for this. We're not looking to do a model for everybody. This works for Park Kitchen and the Bent Brick because we're tiny. We're tiny. Park Kitchen has 15 employees, 14 employees. The Bent Brick has 12, 11. And that's really the only reason why this could work for us. And we train. We're used to it. Um, so I, I don't really think that this is a, a, a sea change. We never really looked at it as that. We looked at it as if we're going to be in business for another five years, what does the restaurant look like? What should it look like? And the people who are making the decisions might not be there in five years, but it's certainly a way to keep them there. Right. Well, it's kind of like when the f- a family has a crisis. And yeah. I'm not saying you're, I'm not <laughs> trying to imply you had a crisis, but I'm just saying obviously something had to happen for you to yeah. make the mission statement and, re- and have your employees say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. We got to. And let, you know, owning a restaurant is certainly no bucket of fucking peaches. It, it, there are challenges every day. And if you're facing them day to day, you're going to get worn out. You are. I know that for a fact. I've been in the business for 25 years. If you're just looking at it from day to day, you will get worn out. The only solution that I know of to keep my own sanity is to, to look at it from year to year or look at it in every, every five-year increments. What do you want to do? Where do you want to be? Because if you don't have that vision, you won't get there. You won't. But you still have to look at it day to day, right? You can't ignore that. So you, it does drive, drive you crazy on a certain level. Well, really, that's what having great managers are there for. That's what they do. That's their job. I, I am not day-to-day anymore. I don't, I'm not there day-to-day anymore. I can't be. I've got two restaurants. People like John, Kurt, they're, they're in the same boat. They have multiple people in place to make sure that their restaurants run smoothly. And that's their job. And they hold those guys and girls accountable for what they do. That's pretty much the point where any restaurateur has to be. If you have one restaurant, it's different. But if you have any more than one restaurant, you got to delegate. You got to. So how much of your, uh, how much of the experience at Park Kitchen and Bent Brick are the Scott Dolich experience versus those that you've delegated to? Um, you know, you're yeah. a really talented chef. Yeah. And so you're not they're doing it, and people probably would like it if they knew they were coming in and yeah. Scott was the guy in the kitchen. Uh, interesting question. Very interesting question. We struggle with that so much. Um, I don't, almost don't know how to answer that. Um, it, that started with David Padberg taking the, the, the restaurant, Park Kitchen, in, in more Asian directions. And at first, I was really hesitant because it wasn't really my comfort zone. But he was so well-versed in it that he was able to do it very, very well. And the reality is I haven't been at the stoves at the restaurant 
for seven years, probably. Ever? Uh, if I was at the stove, shit was real at the restaurant. Like there was, <laughs> like I should, it, it should not have been that way. All right. Okay. okay. That, let's put it that way. If I was at the stove, it should not have been that way. And you weren't uh, dealing with a happy camper over there either. You were probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I was pissed. Yeah. Um, and not that I was, I never get pissed when I'm cooking. I get, I get pissed when I'm on the way in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get pissed when I, when I'm put in a situation by surprise. Um, but that's a, that is a tough situation. And, it, uh, David Sapp, my current chef at Park Kitchen, who's awesome. He was very adamant about, well, what's Scott Dolich? What is Scott Dolich's DNA or whatever you want to call it in the food? And so he wanted, you know, he wanted me to help, help cook with him and, and, and cook. And I said, just look at the old recipes and interpret them. I'll be there. I'm tasting all the time. I, I do help with R and D, but I don't want to get in there and cook because then they're just going to be copying me and I don't want that. And that's one of the reasons why Will Price is such a great chef. He did his own thing. He, he interpreted it through a park kitchen or a bent brick lens or, or tried to, but that's what made him a great cook. And to me, that's really what's important. I know I'm not going to keep these guys forever. They're not going to work for Scott Dolich for 12 years. Um, maybe they will. But they're going to go and have their own thing. And part of what I like to do is train people. And I think it's important for people to think for themselves. So I'm sh- going to make sure that the, that the train's not going to run off the track, but I want them to do their own thing. And like David Sapp... He just handed me a couple of dishes recently that blew my mind. They were so delicious, and, and they were better than I ever would have come up with in a park kitchen way. What were they? One was a uh, radish pumpernickel, and um, uh, it's like a, a fromage blanc puree. That, that was a salad that was beautiful. It was just, it was, it, it could have been done in kind of an overblown Nordic type of way, but he did it so simply and beautifully, it was delicious. Um, and he came up with a great steelhead dish with uh, cauliflower grits that he took. He ripped that recipe from a really old Scott Dolich recipe and totally expanded it and blew it out and did something completely different with it. And it's great dish, fantastic dish. That's one that could be featured on Picnic. I think that's exactly it. Because I think this and this is our this is our product placement here, Scott. If we talk about Picnic, which is a great app. Have you heard about Picnic? I have, yeah. Yeah, P-I-Q-N-I-Q, and it's, I think it's play, people in their own kitchens can interpret maybe something they had at a restaurant or something they've seen they can interpret. A Scott, a Scott Dolich recipe. There we go. Gonna, yeah. There should be a whole section. Yeah. Get into there. the mind of Scott Dolich yeah, yeah. through there, Picnic. There we go. You don't have to go through a lot of hair to get into the mind. <laughs> it's a, a thick skull, though. Yeah. yeah. It's a Picnic. Think yeah, of that. Picnic as a mixture of Reddit and Instagram, where obviously people love to take pictures of either the meals they're eating or the meals they're preparing, and Picnic is for the meals you're preparing in your homes. And you want to share and look for other, you know, input input on what you're doing. Like some people will be like, hey, it looks great. You should try this next time. And output. People are proud of what they prepare at home. Yeah. I mean, we all take pictures of, a lot of people take pictures of mm-hmm. restaurant food, but the stuff you take at home is yeah. something one did oneself. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a cool app and they're a Portland company. Yep. So very cool that they supported this podcast and support... Yeah, we're here to uh, showcase everything going on in Portland, so they want to support that. Find you it can, on our website. Yeah, you can find it on uh, rightatthefork.com. Just look for the links. P-I-Q-N-I-Q. The, uh, yeah, there's a link right on the homepage, P-I-Q-N-I-Q, yes. So thanks. Did you, did you get a chance to look at the uh, app? I did, all? yeah. 
And it seems cool because it's almost like it's an interpretation. You just get so many different interpretations of a recipe. It's cool. Yeah, I think it's it's a nice discussion. Yeah. You're not going to get that discussion when someone just takes a picture of restaurant food and puts it out there. Yeah. You know, what I like to do on my Instagram sometimes is not always show the food. I think that gets old, but I will like show the menu. Which one would you choose? Which one looks better? And that usually starts a little conversation. Yeah. So, um, so what I think people, I think, let's go back to the tipping model right. a little bit. People don't necessarily understand that at the end of the day, from their standpoint, you may have made some tweaks, big tweaks, big changes in your model, but at the end of the day, when it comes to paying the check, mm. it's pretty much the same amount that they were already paying. But some people say they want the control over that tip. Right. Right? So. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It is the same amount of money. It doesn't matter whether you're adding 15 or 18 or 20% to the final bill or the restaurant itself is tacking on that 15 or 18% to your bill. The end amount that you pay is the same amount. But like you pointed out, tipping is more than just about the money. And that's really what we're trying to, to dig into right now is we're finding out that people do want control of, or they, they, they want what they think is control at the end of the meal. Because a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from the online articles has been, well, how do I get good service if I can't tip and tell these people that they either did a great job or they did a horrible job. And that's just not true. The tip isn't the influencer of that. Any successful restaurant that has survived for, for more than two years, I guarantee you, has a good management system in place that tells their servers how they're doing. And so, so the, the passive-aggressive post-meal tip isn't necessarily going to improve or... No or harm that the person who gets no tip. Think about the timing of that. You're tipping after everything is done. It's right. the last thing you do. You've already gotten every last bit of service that you're going to get. Every last bit has already occurred. And to think that you are going to influence that server for the next time even? No. The most important vote that you have as a customer is to leave and not come back. It's not the tip. Or I think you have the opportunity in today's world. You can go online to the restaurant's website and write the sure. owner. That's to me is the, Absolutely. is the best way to handle it. Not go to Yelp immediately, maybe right. eventually. I don't know. Some, but I've always felt if I got a real problem, I don't want to tell the world about it. I want to tell the, the most helpful thing I can do. That's, that's an ideal situation. I don't, I'm not holding out any pretense that I'm going to change people's behavior. They can do that now. People can just write to me or to our to the restaurant or call us and say, hey, we had an issue last night at your restaurant. The food was cold or undersalted or we had the, the best server. And that does happen sometimes, but it's not very often. Uh, people, I think, use the money, that the money that the tip represents as that feedback because, let's face it, it is slightly passive aggressive. You're not really, it's not a direct... You're not facing somebody and saying, hey, that was awful last night. You guys didn't do a good job. That's tough to do. Mm -hmm. as a, even as a, a seasoned customer, it's very difficult to face somebody and say, I didn't have a good time here. Um, it's just as tough to, to, to dish out a compliment too, right? It takes a decent amount of guts to face somebody and say, you rocked that. 
Um, that's easier though. It's that's a little way easier. easier than it's a little easier. So spiritual. that's what the tip does do is it allows people to have a, a a medium, an avenue to say we didn't like this. That's my it's my mother in law, and hopefully she's not hearing this. But my mother in law is one of those vindictive tippers. Yeah, where if she feels like she's been you know underserved, mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, rather than saying anything during the course of the entire meal, she'll like st- start to uh, you know. Go ten percent or five percent. Right. So my wife, my wife and I are on the other hand. We're starting to pull out the money because we're not. It's like, it's like, yeah. it's like come yeah. on. So, yeah. but let's face it, and I, I believe this firmly. The the most, the biggest vote you have to a restaurant's success is your feet. If you don't like it, you're not going to go back. The restaurant's going to go under, right? And that's going to solve the problem. And your mouth when you tell other people we had the either the best or the worst experience. That but, that works too, and you know there's also. The, the element that if you, you know, you can only put so much faith in the fact that if you're going to give that server a 10% tip, that they're actually going to introspe- introspectively say, hmm, well, maybe I should have been there a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. as opposed to, well, that woman was just a jerk and she was, you know, she was so involved with her partner that, you know, she didn't really care, so whatever. That's a tough. That's a that's a leap of faith, right there. That's a bit, especially when they're really busy, Absolutely. and they have like probably two seconds to right. evaluate the tip they just got. So this is the interesting part. One of the interesting parts for us, and it's a challenge, is we're looking for. It's not just eliminating tipping. We're looking at it as like how do we replace it with something, um, some type of avenue where you can actually give us feedback in a way that's constructive, even if it's not money, even if it's not that you know ten or fifteen percent where you can say, you can tell the restaurant, I had a great time, or that server was great, or whatever. And uh, what is that? How is that going to? Good question. We're, if your listeners have, have any input on it, we are totally open to it. We put it out on our website. We're looking for feedback. There's the Uber model where you can rate it one through five. Right. Um, we've also and tossed- you get, Now with the places with Square- you often get your receipt and a "Did you like this experience?" Yes. What's the experience, which I think is a natural, which is good, which is a real go- organic way to do it, and it takes advantage of this yeah. beautiful digital world we're in. Yeah, and there are restaurants that buy the buy the cook or server a round of drinks if you really liked your service. That works, although it doesn't. Now that's it, a little crowdfunding. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it doesn't work for negative feedback, right? Um, but those are some of the models that we've been looking at. Do you have do you have plans? Because I, I remember this the first time I was in Europe, and you know where there's they're not on a tipping system, and it threw me off completely. In the first little while, I was tipping them, and they, they what happens when somebody still insists on tipping them? Right, that'll happen for sure. Yeah, uh, especially and that's in the interim. good, right? Well, yes and no. So it's good. Yeah, obviously we want people to feel like they had such a great experience exactly. that they they can leave a little extra. Um. That could either go into a fund that'll go towards a staff party, and we can have the servers and the cooks administer that however they want to, however they want to use it. Um, there are some compliance issues surrounding the tip pools. Yeah, that's what I understand is because of Oregon law, you have to be careful about where that money ends up going. Yeah, so there's there are, there are some compliance issues that you'd have to be aware of, and they're the same if you were to tip on top of a fifteen percent surcharge, or if you just had a, a tip pool straight yeah. up. Um, so ideally we'd like it so that we can arrange our, our markup so that people feel like they're getting the exact amount of value that they should. It's just like buying a sweater, buying a pair of shoes or going to the doctor. If we're charging too much, we're going to see levels drop. 
if we're charging the right amount, we'll see levels may be the same or increase. I don't, I see a lot of potential in the restaurant industry being able to simply manage their value perception from that. I don't see why that, that should be an issue. Do you have any concern for, because our <clears throat> kitchen and bent brick, really special places with delicious food that are that's thoughtful. Do you have any concern with all of a sudden now this is what your restaurants are in the news for? And we can give our, our dear friend Heather a little credit for that too, right? She's sure. working with you to get this message out. Yeah. Uh, definitely a, a challenge. We Ultimately, in two years, I, I don't see us being known. I, I don't want to be the, known as the first one to do this. And I'm not. Um, I think that I might be, I'm thinking about it enough so that it, it's not just a, uh, hey, we're going to take tipping off the table, come look at us. I think that um, ultimately we're going to have to provide the product. It's always going to be that way, day in and day out. If we're not providing fantastic food and fantastic service as a restaurant in Portland, you're gone. You're gone. I think that's that's the answer to everything. You have to maintain, yeah. that's why the food scene is so cool here. Yeah. You have to maintain a certain level. You can't necessarily just do well because you're a hotel next to a restaurant, right. that's still not going to survive. There are too many choices exactly. when people check into a hotel. And yeah. it's not all about the tourism, although it's starting to become that. Yeah, there's an issue. Yeah, not an issue, but that's it's definitely great to get the culinary tourism here. And, and what percentage of your audience do you think is local versus coming in? And You know, I'd say that we're, we're probably 60% local and 40% tourist. Wow. And it, it definitely, it, it increases with time. I was going to say 10 years ago, that wasn't the number. Yeah, it wouldn't even be close. We'd get 10% tourists. We'd be so happy when somebody from New York or Chicago or LA came in and say, oh, you know, we talking to such and such at the hotel and they said, come, come see you. That was 10%. So, and I, it causes me to remember that when I've interviewed or just talked to chefs, a lot of, quite a few of them are here because they saw Park Kitchen written about in 2002. Yeah. I can remember a few times people say, I saw an article and I uh, saw the review or I saw when you f- first stepped into the limelight with Park Kitchen. Yeah. I think, I think Rick Ciancarelli is one who was reading way back when and I can think of a few others. He might have been. He yeah. Been. No, I think it, he's. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> yeah. They're still good days. I think people, you know, they're really good days. They're just different days. Yeah. That's all. Part of the history. Court, do you want to do our... Uh... Yeah, I've got a round. We like to do these, uh, some uh, final uh, quickfire questions here, Bring which it. may or may not have to do with actually owning a restaurant, but this first one does. If you could uh, name one thing, the biggest thing you've learned over the years as a restaurant owner, as a restaurateur, uh, that if you hadn't learned it, you'd, you would have failed. Could you single that one thing out? One thing? The, yeah. The, the most important thing you've been able to learn that's, that's led to success. Otherwise, without it... Without a doubt, people. You focus on your people. Don't don't. Yeah, you got to focus on your food, but you have to focus on the people making it and serving it. Okay. What's the one thing you would change about Portland if you could? Mm. From a business standpoint, I wish it was more business friendly. Mm. I wish it was more business friendly. I, I, that's I, the one thing that I miss going to cities like New York or uh, San Fran or or even Denver, where I was recently. Business-friendly cities, and they, they, there's a lot of money that goes around. You think that'll change with more money in the city? Nope. Okay. Hmm. I don't. All right, final question here. And we were talking about tourists coming here, but if you could go somewhere tomorrow, any vacation spot in the world, where would you go? 
Uh, I, judging by the the snowfall in Pacific Northwest, I'd go up to I'd go up to British Columbia and go skiing. Nice. <laughs> so do you get out with your with your teenagers very often? Are you, are you able to travel now, or is it I are do. these not the best travel years? I, I'm still in good travel years. They still, I think, like me or still want to be around me. <laughs> I don't know if they like me. But uh, we just went skiing this weekend up at Bachelor, and we had the best fucking weekend. I, it, I, I still have a smile on my face from it. It was awesome. 12 and 14 are the, yeah. the right last there. chance. Right. That's what I'm thinking. That's when I did my cross-country trips with my kids and, yeah. and discovered Portland. They were that age, and I thought the same thing. This is the, I wasn't sure they liked being in the car with me for 50 days, oh. but we survived. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm so glad that we discovered Portland and ended up here. That's gutsy. So are you getting a lot of calls from people who are asking about your change, other restaurants? Yeah, we're definitely, we're, we're starting to field some calls. Um, I think that I, what, I'm not the first person to do this, or is obviously more high profile restaurateurs who are doing it, that, that we were waiting for, for a little while. Uh, Tom Douglas, Danny Meyer, they're, they're fielding a lot of yeah, calls. Yeah, Tom Douglas just went across the board, right? Across the board. Are they already doing it? That's in Seattle. Yeah. I mean, he's the biggest retro- restaurateur yeah. He and Ethan stole, but probably Tom's got more restaurants, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, we've been fielding calls, and there, there, there have been a bunch of uh, um, emails back and forth. Restaurants are – everybody knows that they're going to have to deal with this issue. Uh, most of it is going to be the minimum wage rising. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're doing one possible solution, one possible model that may work. Um, and everybody, I think the more minds at the table – the more models that are going to be successful. Fantastic. So for the time being, we're asking people, go ahead on Facebook or Instagram, make some suggestions on how to, the feedback system. And the other good way is go into Park Kitchen and Bent Brick. That's the best way. Eat and and be verbal. Tell tell you. Yeah. Look for the smiling bald guy and let me know. Yeah. I'll stay out. So uh, (laughs) for for that reason, Um, thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for having me It's always fun to talk to you. Yeah, pleasure. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Intro music by Ariel Varinas. Find links to her music in the show notes section. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. <laughs>